2: Hello and welcome to the EDH Retcast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he doesn't have to be blocked by two or more creatures, but I still think he's a menace. It's Matt Morgan.
1: So I know it's all fun and games to make fun of gas prices lately, but have you seen the price on chimneys lately? They are literally through the roof.
2: <laughs> I... Matt, I have no words. I, they get I, more I, beautiful I was, every week.
1: I was hoping your silence was a good thing. And so knowing <laughs> yes. that it is, uh, that, that comforts me. I, I really can go to bed at night now.
2: Are, are are you going to go from, you know, the usual MTG mantra of buy singles to buy shingles since you're talking about. We, we could do go?
1: that. Uh, hopefully you don't get shingles, though, because that is unfortunate.
2: Good point. Now, that's a that's a mental image I'm going to get out of my brain. So let's move on. Up next, he has hexproof. He just doesn't know it because he hasn't been attacked by a wizard trying to point spells at him yet. It's Dana Roach. Um, what's
0: a librarian's least favorite
2: sport? Uh, I used to work in a
0: library, so I would love to know your take. Uh, I would guess it's tennis just because of all the racket. <laughs> Come on, Joey, did you lo- did you love that joke? I, I, I'm a fan. I thought it was I, Ace. It felt funny when I served it up, but I wasn't sure if you were going to be able to volley back to me or not. I mean, ah! I, I love that joke. Hey, <laughs> I thought, like, I set it up well.
2: Wow. I Do we have to talk about magic cards? Can we just talk about dad jokes for a while? Because this is the best intro I, we've had in a while. I think oh, we're what? serving some pretty good
1: gems here.
0: Yeah, I mean, they landed <laughs> inside no, the baseline no for joke. sure. Yeah, it's no joke
1: of itch. Oh, what? okay oh, now now we're getting to names <laughs>
2: Now now I think we're stretching a little too far. Now I think we do need to talk about some Magic cards. And I think I also need to finish my intro. Anyway, this is the EDH Recast. I, I think we're also possibly a, a, a dad joke factory. But anyway, EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the Commander format. We compile data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, allegedly what we like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Dana, do you mind telling us what it is that we're talking about? in this week's episode
0: we are talking about shoring up your deck's
2: weaknesses that we are not serving up matt (laughs) i can hear your dad (laughs) jokes they're at the ready i I can hear it but no yeah we want to talk about the different uh things the pitfalls of our decks and the ways that we can kind of cover up those different achilles heels basically it should be a whole bunch of fun real quick before we get into our main topic we want to thank chase aka mana curves for assisting us with the post-production on the show and of course we want to thank our sponsors for the show
0: too the EDH Recast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player. In New Capenna terms, they are the Godfather Part 1 and Godfather Part 2 <laughs> of card vendors. Just go to EDH Rec and click on the card in question and choose the vendor link down below. Doing so supports both the site and the show.
1: And if you'd prefer to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash EDH We have patron tiers of all sorts of levels, and it's just a great way to get yourself a little bit of a bonus in return for supporting the show. So whether you want to join the Discord community, you want to see all of the episodes a day early, there's all that and more over at patreon.com slash rutcast. And courtesy of the patron, we have Darrow Ng. So thank you so much. You're getting that coveted shout-out spot that we do every single week. Uh, Darrow. we appreciate all of the support. Thank you so much. And hopefully uh, you don't find any fault in our tennis jokes.
2: Oh, no. Is this about to be another electricity pun style <laughs> episode where we have more puns than magic card references? Matt, are you about to do this to me again?
1: I haven't really courted that idea, but I think that might
2: actually be something that we could apply here. <laughs> so we're here talking about weaknesses nope. right, fine, in, our, a- <laughs> in our decks. And and I think that I actually need to acknowledge up front that my weakness is pretty clearly dad jokes. Like, this is kryptonite to me. Matt, you are terrific. You're a treasure. I adore you. Never change.
1: <laughs> I, I don't plan on it, no. I, I, I'm i not going to throw a tantrum like uh, like McEnroe, but here I am.
2: Oh, wow. What I especially love about this is that it wasn't even your dad joke. It was Dana's dad joke, and right. you've just taken it and run with it. That's I, amazing I, to me.
1: <laughs> I, I'm not going to take credit for it, no, but uh, I, I will keep it up and and run
2: with it. Oh man. Okay. So let's actually try and force ourselves on topic here. We are far too silly. So yeah, we are talking about our EDH weaknesses and ways that we can cover up for some of those weaknesses as well. And this is a pretty broad concept. We'll probably start by talking about some different types of different deck types that are like literally card type based, and then maybe move on to some actual archetypes and different weaknesses for those a little bit later on in the show as well. But Dana, I actually want to start off just by throwing the ball to you here that wasn't supposed to be a tennis reference. I know that you don't throw <laughs> balls in tennis, Matt. That that wasn't. Uh, this is a basketball. We're switching sports. Maybe I don't know. Uh, but I want to put the ball in your court. I've lost my train of thought here Um, about the ways that you feel about the uh, showing up your weaknesses. Like, is it a difficult thing for you to do in your EDH decks? Or do you think that this is actually pretty easy? You just need to find exactly what it is. Is it a broad thing? Is it a specific thing? What comes to your mind when you think of EDH weaknesses?
0: Well, I, I think the first thing you need to do is you need to figure out what those weaknesses are first. Um, It's definitely something I think about in the deck brewing stage when I'm first putting a deck together. Um, you know, I, I start with the kind of the base cards. What do I want this deck to do? Cause that's number one, how I brew. So I have a concept I start with, but once I start figuring that out and putting those pieces in, then I start looking at, okay, what do I have to worry about? Number one, what might stop my strategy, but number two, what might stop this particular deck, uh, in part based on the colors in the deck, some color combinations are vulnerable to some things that Other color combinations aren't, or some strategies are vulnerable to some things that other strategies are not. So relatively early in the process, I think about that. And when I lose a game, like I I think about, okay, did I lose that game because that's a weakness of my deck? So it's, it's something I'm pretty conscious of in the first place. Um, and I think that's kind of the the first and foremost thing you have to worry about is is you have to before you can address the problem, you really have to define the problem and figure out what it is because it's different for you know every color combination for every deck for every play style for every meta. There's a lot of <laughs> variance there, and being able to kind of narrow down the problem is absolutely what you need to do to to even start addressing it.
1: Yeah. Okay. I, I, I love that point, Dan, about just knowing what the problem is before you try to fix it. Uh, I I think a lot of players, and I know I'm just as guilty as anyone out there, but we start putting in solutions to imaginary problems, and then we Mm. miss the actual problems that are in the deck. Whatever it is, whatever the deck doesn't do well or struggles to play against, I'm putting in cards that don't even have anything to do with that. And I, I know I've struggled with that in a few decks before.
2: Yeah. And one of the things, for example, that you mentioned there, Dana, is that there are certain colors that struggle against certain card types. For example, it wasn't until recently that we got Feed the Swarm in black where we can actually finally remove enchantments in this color. And that was for a very long time. Just if you're playing a deck that's Dimir or something like that, like you just have to confront the fact that this is a thing your deck cannot deal with. And those are big, obvious ones. But then I do still feel as though there are a lot of things matt like you were just saying there that you don't discover what the weakness is until you're actually playing with the deck and sometimes the thing that you think that the things that you think will be your weakness are not actually the weakness of the deck at all it turns out you might be able to evade them or you don't care about them in the way that you thought that you would and carrying those uh misgivings carrying those uh same ideas from one deck to another might not actually translate all that well because it turns out that this deck has a completely different vulnerability that you didn't even realize it did
1: well and some of the solutions too are going to be playgroup dependent um Kind of like I was saying about you, you, you drop solutions to imaginary things. Say you're a go wide token decks. Like you have a token deck, kind of like what Joey's does. Uh, you go very wide with a bunch of tokens uh, and you think, man, I really struggle against ghostly prison effects. So you find all these ways to take care of those types of cards, but nobody plays pillow forts in your play group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then you find yourself trying to, like I said, answering these things that don't, they're, they're not going to be a problem. So if you don't know what the actual problem is, like Dana pointed out, then you don't. It doesn't. It's not going to help you when you're trying to find those solutions.
0: Well, and part of that too is is figuring out what sacrifices you're maybe willing to make that address to address that problem. Joey, mm-hmm. Joey mentioned feed the swarm, mm-hmm. which is a card I'm running in a ton of black decks now, particularly ones that don't have access to say green or white. Um, because that 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 lets me actually deal with a problem enchantment, um, something that isn't a you know issue really if you're playing Golgari or you're playing Orzov. Um, however, the the reality is black has had access to some things that deal with enchantments. You could run <laughs> Unstable Obelisk or you could run Um Scar from Existence. Uh. The question the question always was is it worth paying that price to deal with the problem? Myself, I never felt like it was. I never wanted to have one of those cards soaking up a slot to have to pay that much mana to, to solve the thing. I, at some point, you're like, it's just so costly that I would rather lose the game than give up that much to deal with one problem, and the cost I'm paying is maybe going to lose me the game anyway at that point. <laughs> right, Whereas yeah, Feed the Swarm has has kind of landed in that sweet spot where It's not a great card. It's sorcery speed. Three mana is not nothing. But it's enough that you're willing to pay it to have the ability to deal with enchantments in black. So, like, figuring out that push and pull and finding out whether a card is worth paying the price to solve the problem Mm. is also part of that evaluation.
1: Yeah. I struggle with the whole, like, scour from existence or an unstable obelisk argument applies because... I mean, that's why people said, like, Iona's not a problem card. And we know Iona was a very big problem yeah, card. Sure. So yeah. <laughs> um, I I think Feed the Swarm is such a huge help for black decks. Yes, you technically did have answers, but I don't think they were ever worth running like you kind of pointed out. Well,
0: th- but that's right. They weren't. So, like, you have you as a person making the evaluation have determined that wasn't worth it, but this is. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Right. And you're kind of doing a lot of that here. You're like – because there are answers to a lot of things. So the question becomes – is the answer worth what it costs to have it in my deck.
2: Yes. And I want to clarify real quick on the Iona point there. I don't think that it was like an oppressively powerful or even, excuse me, it wasn't oppressively popular. It wasn't like a problem in that sense. It's a problem in the sense of like, I play this card and then someone at the table doesn't get to have fun for the rest of the game. And like, that is a social thing that is a lot more like, it's not like we had like, oh, these numbers prove like that's not our attitude here. But scour uh, uh, scour from existence is not a realistic answer to that perceived problem of someone doesn't get to play magic. Like, yeah anyway i just wanted to clarify that point but the scour from existence point is also important to me because it highlights a fact that some commanders can actually pay those costs a lot easier than others we were talking about how black didn't have answers to enchantments but that also is generally true of most Grixis colors and if you were playing an Isix of the is magnus deck well a scour from existence actually is probably right up your alley because it's nearly free for mizx to play because all of the experience counters that your deck has amassed will reduce the generic costs of the spells that you cast so scour from existence is like a free spell to cast in that deck, basically. So even though there are some of these broad categories, the answers are going to get more and more nuanced as you get to more and more specific examples. And that is a really big thing for us to keep in mind.
0: Yeah, I mean, since we're discussing Feed the Swarm and we're discussing things that hit enchantments, I guess, I mean, that's maybe a logical place to begin talking about this. Um, enchantments are a thing. You mentioned Grixis colors can't deal with them. That is, if, if, if I'm building a deck that's Rakdos or I'm building a deck that's Grixis or mono black or mono red... I have to go into that that brewing phase or at least or, or at least leave the brewing phase knowing that okay enchantments are going to be a problem for me not just an enchantress deck that's going to be a huge problem but an <laughs> enchantment it, like enchantments in general someone is playing tokens and drop a doubling season that's going to be an issue or they're, or they're playing you know planeswalkers and drop a doubling season so do do I have a plan for for solving that I I think about that in 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 try to bake that into the deck very early on because that's something at some point I'm going to have to deal with in that deck.
1: And I think that's kind of why Chaos Warp is so good in mono red decks, in in Rakdos decks, because not only is it the best answer, but oftentimes it's the only answer for a lot of different card types. Uh, and, And not even just you have to get rid of every single enchantment out there, but I can't remember the last time that I've played a game where at least one enchantment wasn't Massively powerful and and made a huge impact on the game in every single game. So having those types of answers just kind of built in, no matter what, um, that's never really going to be a thing that you sets you back too far because chances are you're going to need it for some situation in, in in any every single game.
0: Well, to to use chaos warp for the example, I've heard people say, oh. Chaos warp. I, I I hit something and they flip something worse. I'm like that's not a chaos warp problem. That's you choosing the <laughs> wrong thing to chaos warp. Why did you choose oh. something to hit with a chaos warp when there was something oh. worse that could possibly be flipped? Like you're just picking poor targets.
1: That that's a friend problem for them putting in the Avengers ender. Right. Maybe. Yeah. There yeah. It is. Yeah.
2: Wow, D- Dana with the, the 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 scintillating hot takes over here. Just. What, why are you playing chaos warps that are fried, dead, and laid to the side? Like, what's going on with you, Mary? Like, that's I'm I'm loving sassy Dana here. Please, more of that. Well,
0: and I will say the thing about chaos warp too. And someone made this point on Twitter when we were talking about it recently. Is at the very least, it's funny with chaos warp, even if it goes right. badly. At least you get a good story out of it. So, like, that's that's all right too.
1: Chaos warp does lead to a lot of stories.
2: Yes. So, it, since we talked about Rakdos and, you know, enchantments, a, a thing that I frequently have used in my Rakdos decks is a card like All Is Dust or Oblivion Stone, which solve all of the problems at once. Those are cards that get rid of, uh, in the case of All of Dust, it makes everyone sacrifice each permanent that has a color. Or in the case of Oblivion Stone, it destroys basically any non land permanent, unless you've put counters on them, um, specific types of fake counters, I think. Uh, but it usually is just like you crack it, you get rid of everything. And honestly, that has kind of become one of my go to solutions when i'm playing a recto deck where it's like instead of pinpoint getting rid of a, a couple enchantments here and there i'm just going to try and solve all of those issues all in one go because i know this deck is going to be weak to those things so i better just have you know one whole big answer that's going to address all of it all at once but that has recently kind of become a thing that shoots me in the foot a little bit, specifically in my Karazakar the Eye Tyrant deck. My Karazakar deck has a very weird relationship with board states because I want people to have a lot of creatures in play so that they can attack each other and then Karazakar will let me draw cards. I want people to have a lot of creatures in play that I can goad to force my opponents to hit each other instead of hitting me. Like that is part of that deck's entire game plan. And then when I look at those usual solutions that I would have to an enchantment, like an All is Dust, well, I don't necessarily want to actually... Play those because they are counter to the fact that I want the board to be big. I want a large board that I can cast a mob rule into and gain control of all of the creatures. So sometimes the answers that you have kind of also conflict with each other too, which is very interesting to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very dex. That's an example of something that's very color and deck centric The Oblivion Stone answer or the Nevendril's Disc answer is probably not one you ever really consider if you're building, say, a Selesnia deck because you have ways to solve those problems. You don't have to kind of use the nuclear option to get out of um, a situation where there's like just two or three bad enchantments on board. You probably have a a scalpel versus a sledgehammer to to deal with that. and. You know, you have to be creative sometimes, too. If you're playing red, well, we now have liquid metal torque or something where you can yes. turn that thing into an artifact and then blow it up. Uh, you know, liquid metal coating isn't quite as versatile because it doesn't have for mana. But that's an option that I've ran in red decks in the past, too, where I'm like, I can't deal with enchantments. I know that this meta sees a lot of them. I I, I ran liquid metal coating in the past, and, and I definitely run torque a lot now. And I'm very conscious of torque in decks that don't have green and don't have white because th- that's a got a jail free card sometimes
2: oh heck i'm playing liquid metal torque in decks that do have green and do have white because those colors are also good again still, getting... it's
0: still useful yeah for sure yeah uh,
2: do, does this deck contain reclamation stage it can destroy artifacts cool liquid metal torque is going to be one of my ma- my mana rocks it can solve anything now not just artifacts and enchantments i'll turn any creature into an ar- i'll turn a planeswalker into an artifact i love that thing and actually, I think I'd be remiss not to mention this. Sometimes, if your deck can't answer enchantments, you don't try to play the enchantment, you try to play the player who controls that enchantment. Mm-hmm. I was just recently on an episode of the Command Zone's extra turns with our co editor, Chase, aka manner Curve. Shout out. Uh, and, and it was so much fun to play with Lady Danger and Craig Blanchette. And I'm not gonna spoil anything. You should definitely go watch the episode, it's fantastic. Um, but I am in colors in in that game that can't do a lot to enchantments so i tried a different angle entirely and that was to try and get into the good graces of the player who controls enchantments so that they might focus their attention elsewhere and maybe that leaves an opening and again i'm not going to spoil anything about whether and how that strategy worked out but the point is that sometimes there are different tactics available to you beyond just your colors Um, you play the player not their board and this is a tactic that could potentially pay off for you if your deck can't do anything against you know enchantments
0: well in really you know artifacts are kind of the twin to this they're, they're they're the they often get lumped in with enchantments as well and and it's very similar there a lot of things can't deal with artifacts um it's maybe not as bad as enchantments but That's something I think about as well when I'm, when I'm brewing that deck up or or after I've lost to an artifact deck. I'm like, okay, is there (laughs) anything I can do with the situation? So next time I'm faced with that, I at least have one answer in my deck. And in in some situations, you don't, but sometimes you're like, I just should have a Vandal Blast in this deck. Why am I not running it? Maybe I need to have, I need to have that kind of artifact nuclear option here to, to solve that problem. Um, or, or again, the, the liquid metal torque is going to let you, um, turn something into an artifact. If you have answers already, it's going to let you then make that answer more versatile.
1: So I guess my question then, so we've talked about like how, if if your deck is weak to artifacts, what if you're playing that artifact deck and like you have those weaknesses? What I, There's a lot of artifacts hate out there. There's Vandal Blast, like nearly every color has some way or nearly every deck even has ways to take care of artifacts. How if you're the or if you're the artifact player? How are you guys navigating that situation of okay? I know that if any board wipe comes out, I'm hosed. How do you guys kind
2: of build those into and recover from those weaknesses when they pop up? For me, in the case of Artifacts, the answer is the burgeoning amount of recursion we keep getting in sets to set. Like, and I love seeing those. There's that new Brilliant Restoration card, for example, that helps you bring all of those uh, Artifacts and Enchantments from your graveyard right back into play. It's like seven mana and it costs four white pips. So that's a lot. But at the same time, I'm willing to take that risk because I want the, like a single Bane of Progress is going to ruin my day forever. And I will definitely struggle to get back into that game. So having an answer that brings everything right back against Sledgehammer rather than a scalpel, that means a lot to me. Or Scrap Mastery is another fantastic example of this. So I guess in that case, though, what my response to it is an acceptance that the thing will destroy the stuff. It's not me trying to prevent the things from dying in the first place. It's a solution if those things were destroyed. And that tends to be my take. Um, That's a good question, though, Matt. Like. Now, I guess, you know, letting Dana answer the question. Dana, do you also have that, like, acknowledge that it did happen and then bring it all back? Or are you more of the prevent it from ever happening in the first place kind of guy?
0: It, it depends on the situation. It depends how the deck plays. I mean, it, it's it, there isn't a hard and fast answer, I don't think. Um, you know, I have an Azorius equipment deck. Um, Savin's Reclamation is a solid card, but it's in that deck in particular because it's an equipment deck. Hmm. And most of my equipment, I, I think, in that particular deck of the like 16 or 17 pieces of equipment in it basically everything but batterskull is recurrable with sivin's reclamation <laughs> and that's something i've paid attention to and that's one of the reasons i'm running that card in that deck i'm like oh it's going to get past any it's going to get back any artifact i need or any of my my equipment that i need um, and i can use it a second time then cuz it has flashback so having that's a card i'm very conscious of as a way to deal with somebody taking out what my main strategy is in that particular deck I'm very conscious of the fact that in that deck, Teferi's Protection saves my equipment as well as my creatures, whereas something like Ghost Way or Eerie Interlude that only protects creatures is less useful to dodge things in that deck because it's not a really creature-heavy deck, whereas there are some decks I have with a ton of creatures where I would you know, be willing to protect the creatures with like a blink effect. So it's just the kind of thing you have to, I think tweak and pay attention to based on just what your deck strengths and weaknesses are what your colors are there's a lot of push and pull there replenish kind of effects that like you mentioned joy to bring back all your enchantments once upon a time it was replenished now we have multiple different things mm-hmm. that maybe aren't as buffed as replenishes but like there are ways <laughs> expensive to, right there, there are ways to recur those things without having to pay 75 dollars too um, so there's a lot more options there now, I think, for people to to find the solution that best suits their personal play style, maybe.
1: I, I really like that point, Dana, about, you know, open the vaults or uh, uh, what was the other one? A Resurgent Belief, the one that we just got back with uh, Modern Horizons again. Yeah. Those cards all like, okay, white doesn't draw cards very well, but they do recur things very, very well. Yes. White decks, I, I think, at least have that in their strengths category. So. I like being able to recur a lot of different types of permanence. Uh, that's one thing, at least, you know, if a board wipe happens or Joey, I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now. Uh, what was the card from Crimson Vow Commander that brings your creatures back that you just absolutely love? Oh, Storm of Souls. Storm of Souls is amazing.
2: There it is. Yes, and that one, one, yeah. So six mana sorcery returns all of your creature cards from your graveyard to the battlefield, and each one of them is a 1-1 spirit with flying in addition to its other types, and then you get rid of that spell for good. That is a one-sided recursion effect. This card's amazing. My mom plays this in her Kanki Flying tribal deck, and like because bringing back all of your stuff, and a bunch of those flying creatures... Pump each other up. Like, oh, is my Empyrean Eagle that I got back and 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 my other angels, like my achromas are, are they one ones now? doesn't matter. They're each giving each other like plus four, plus five. I still have a gravitational shift in play. Like it's beautiful. But also like this can totally tie into other things that those decks are already doing because you, this doesn't bring them back as tokens or anything. You can blink them. And then they'll be their own regular huge size again. Yes, oh, the recursion is beautiful. This card, people are sleeping on it. This card's amazing. Totally play Storm of Souls. That's a great effect to get you right back in it. Even the ETB effects alone off of this thing will be so good.
0: Well, and since we're talking about creatures, I guess we can kind of move over to discuss, you know, creatures both as a problem um, to deal with and as a weakness of your own deck. Um, I-, I talked about Eerie Interlude and um, ghost way. Those are cards I tend to eyeball very closely if I'm playing white and my deck is reliant on creatures. They are a way to solve a problem, which is someone else's board wipe coming down or someone else's cyclonic rift coming down because they blink creatures out. Mm. Um, There's not a lot of things short of counterspells that get you out from underneath a, a, a rift. And at least it will keep your creatures around if someone tries to rift away your board. I'm a big fan of both of those two cards if I'm playing a creature heavy deck or just the the kind of Boros charm-esque effects that give all your stuff indestructible. That plenty of times will save you. Um, and that's sometimes a pretty big swing when somebody like is relying on a clean board, they cast that, you know, Wrath of God style spell and your stuff just blanks it. Um, not only is that kind of a defensive move, you're, you, you've protected your own stuff, you're protecting your creatures and your strengths, but you force someone else to pay mana and and waste a card, and you've thrown their plans entirely to the wind. Um, so I, I really enjoy those kind of things in a deck.
2: And especially, I think you point something out there, even if yours isn't the specifically creature-heavy deck in that particular game, like someone else might be drumming up a bunch of attention. Like Matt's board state is going absolutely haywire over there, but like it's still worth it for me to play some of those cards that you just mentioned to protect my stuff for when player four decides that she's going to just wipe up the board because matt is so scary and i want to protect my stuff from the fact that someone else is doing an answer to someone else's thing like sometimes the shoring up your own weaknesses means actually shoring up weaknesses that are invited to your deck by dint of the strengths of other people that aren't even the opponent who's causing the thing to happen in the first place is any of this making sense
1: uh no no because first off uh, I'm never the problem. Uh, second <laughs> off, I don't even play creatures in my decks. Uh, that, that, I hate that card type. So you are wrong on both. I'm 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 kidding. I I love both those. And yeah. well
0: so, well, but that that's a good point though. Like the, so, the creatures on the other end. That's something I do also think about. Um, to to use my Azorius equipment deck, there's just not a ton of creatures in that deck. Mm-hmm. Um, the way it's built, I, I it's kind of a Voltron strategy. I'm planning on killing someone with my one attacker. The few creatures I have tend to be support creatures. So. They're not very good blockers either. Uh, I'm well aware in that deck that I'm very vulnerable to someone swinging at me with a wide board. Um, so that's something I, I need to take into account. The ghostly prison kind of effects, your propaganda-esque stuff, I'm much more likely to run in that style deck where I can't reliably have blockers to protect me from creatures so Mm -hmm. that's situation where creatures are a weakness as well and i take that into consideration when i'm brewing how am i going to deal with someone else's swarm in a way that i maybe don't worry about in a deck that has 24 26 creatures in it where i'm going to probably reliably have blockers
2: that, that right there is a huge thing for me. And I actually want to use this as an opportunity to circle back to something that Matt said earlier. But yeah, like if you are playing a creature-heavy deck, you don't need to play one of those ghostly prison effects to prevent people from attacking you with a bunch of creatures. You have a lot more blockers. And yet, this is a a, a thing that we definitely do see players doing from, from time to time. It's not that ghostly prison's a bad guard, but it isn't necessarily the number one thing that could be shoring up the actual weaknesses of a deck that contains a lot of creatures. Your actual weaknesses might not be be other people attacking you with a bunch of creatures if you've got a big board especially if they have vigilance or can block multiple creatures or something like that like and if they're big creatures that you've been making your weakness looks different but ghostly prison is so effective in so many other types of strategies that it can be very tempting to play it across all of the decks that you're playing even though those strategies do have different weaknesses to shore up And so, kind of circling back around to something that you had brought up earlier, Matt, this is a question that I hope I'm going to word well, but there are cards that come to my mind about creature-based decks, specifically Fogs. Fogs can be one of the absolute biggest weaknesses of any creature-based deck any creature deck that uses combat as its primary win condition if someone is playing a bunch of those cards like an ink shield or Teferi's protection to save their own life total or even just outright the card fog to prevent all of the damage like those can be totally devastating to you as an aggro or a creature-based player because if they have the an infinite supply of fogs for example like a constant mists that they can continually use over and over and over again how does your deck ever win well it turns out there are solutions to that and one of the solutions is a Card like Grand Abolisher or Conqueror's Flail, which prevent your opponents from being able to cast spells on your turn. Those are super effective at making sure that fogs never come your way. But, Matt, a point that you brought up earlier was how did you phrase it? It, it was a uh, you're cr- answering problems that aren't actually problems. You're making up problems to solve. Yes. And there yeah. could easily be the case that you have Grand Abolisher or some of those effects in your deck to make sure that no one ever does. Play a bunch of fogs that could wreck your win condition strategy, but what if people aren't actually playing those fogs? Are, in that case, are the Conqueror's Flail or Grand Abolisher effects, are those worth playing to you still? Or is that a case where you would allow yourself to remove those cards from your deck if you see that there aren't a lot of fogs that are scuppering your strategy? What do you think, dude? So I have
1: played different effects like this. Uh, Dragon Lord Dramocha, I don't play it just to keep people from acting on my turn, but also making them play on the person before me's turn. I, oh. In every single game, so many people will be like, oh, okay, well, at the end of your turn, I'm saving all my mana up to do all these things. So I'm making sure that they don't have the mana up to activate abilities, for example. So Dramocha does a lot of stuff. Yes, being able to preserve your battlefield is pretty great. So I probably would play Grand Abolisher, maybe if it weren't Silly expensive, and I didn't have one like a Dragonlord (laughs) Jomocha that I just opened in a pack once. Well, yeah, there's a lot of effects out there that everybody's going to play a Counterspell or two in, in most blue decks. So just even if you're only getting one or two cards out of there, being able to prevent people from acting on your turn... I think is a fairly powerful effect. So if we're talking about Grand Abolisher effects specifically, even if nobody's playing a, a counter heavy type of play group, I still probably think it's worth it because people are doing more than just countering spells on your turn. Okay.
0: Yeah, I do. I, I it's probably never a wrong call playing Grand Abolisher necessarily. Um, <laughs> but it's one of those things I do think, again, your, your, your deck is a big deciding factor. Um, you know, Dosan the Falling Leaf is not a terribly expensive card, and it's the kind of thing that you probably could just slot into any green deck if you're willing to spend the you know seven or eight dollars to pick one up. And again, you probably wouldn't necessarily be wrong to play it, but the only deck where I'm actively running one is is one where number one it draws me a card because it's a legend, oh. but number two, where I'm relying on killing everyone most of the time in the in one combat step and i don't want any of those people casting fogs Mm -hmm. um so despite the fact that i have a couple other green decks none of the other ones are running it because i can occasionally eat a fog and not worry about it i do not want to eat a fog in that recce deck when i've just alpha taking an alpha swing at everybody and putting put half of my library on the field. It's not a risk I can take in that deck, so that deck does run that card so I can prevent that from happening. It's a weakness there and I've made an attempt to shore that up. Yeah,
1: there's enough interaction between removal spells, counter spells, whatever it is, that like Dana said, you're probably not wrong ever running those. So yeah, even if people don't play a lot of fogs or don't play a lot of control decks, there's enough interaction that that these types of cards
2: are probably going to be worth it no matter what. Yeah, I, I guess I'm just interested philosophically in like you know if if I've planned I've in I'm in the deck building stage and I've planned like oh I want to make sure that you know X bad thing doesn't happen to me to completely ruin my strategy so I'll put answers like some of these examples into my deck to make sure that it doesn't happen to me and yet those things never actually manifest during gameplay mm-hmm. well then I'm probably going to want to adjust my deck to you know I, I don't I clearly haven't needed some of these cards and this is one such example where I totally agree that they're worth it but there are probably the other examples where at the beginning of the show, like you said, you don't need to run all of those things because they're answers to problems that aren't actually occurring. And I'm wondering to me where the dividing line is between do I make sure that I keep playing this just in case or do I decide to eventually take some of these answers out because they aren't as necessary as I thought that they would be. And I wonder if to me the the actual answer, uh, the, the thing that would make me fall on one side of that line versus the other is how sharp and important, how pointed those answers are. In this case, Dana, you mentioned the alpha strike. That's because like that is the one turn and it kind of can become a thing where like if you don't get to do that thing your deck ain't doing nothing more you know <laughs> like that is the most important turn you are building up to a very specific point so the more pointed that that uh ruin like if that moment got ruined for you the more devastating that moment would be would probably be the thing that makes me lean towards yes i want these answers versus no i don't think i need them if it's sort of a general malaise if it's a smaller weakness if it's more broad um if there are other versions of recovery and this isn't the only way to fix it, that would probably be a thing that I probably could excuse myself and re- I could recuse those cards from the deck eventually if I saw that they weren't always uh, solving problems that were omnipresent in my games.
0: I think it's something that also changes a little bit over time, too, depending on you know what the card pool is. Hmm. As you've added you know, things like, say, Generous Gift or Council's Judgment in white, things that hit any target... Um, maybe you can afford to be a little bit more general too because you have a few answers that hit multiple things and makes it a little bit easier to have more answers versus I, I remember once upon a time when I first started playing Commander, which we're talking back, you know, Return to Ravnica-ish era, um, Planeswalkers were relatively new at that point in time <laughs> and very few cards interacted with them. Mm. So I intentionally ran things like like Pithing Needle in decks because I didn't always have answers for Planeswalkers. There were situations where someone would drop a Planeswalker, and if I didn't have a flying creature out, I'm like, oh, I have no way to punch through and deal damage to that Planeswalker, and in three turns it might ult on me unless I get really, really lucky. Um, today, number one, there's enough cards that just say Planeswalker, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or we have the, you know, unless you actually hit, hit it once. I think Hero's Downfall was the first big one that we got in Theros that, mm-hmm. that people really ran specifically for that purpose because it killed a creature or a planeswalker. But we've gotten the generous gifts and the council's judgments. And in addition, as a deck builder, maybe you just run more flyers and just run more things that can poke through too. So as time has changed, that's something that, uh, planeswalkers in particular, um, I, I do still think about it as one thing I pay attention to when I build my decks, but, um, there's more answers to that particular problem than maybe there once were.
2: Mm, that's really, that that is really interesting. That is a, an especially good lesson is that you'll never have an answer forever like all of these things will change as the seasons do Um, so that is also I think a really good lesson for us to leave off on for now as we move into another portion of the show because I just realized we've been going a little bit long this is a really fun conversation but guys I do want to get to challenge the stats because it is a really fun thing to do here on this show so let's put the uh, answers aside for now and let's challenge those statistics there are so many pieces of data here on EDHREC but we don't always agree with them Sometimes I think the cards see too much or too little play. So we love challenging those statistics. And Matt, how about you start us off this week? What's your challenge? So I would
1: love to launch us into this next segment. So I will do that right here. (laughs) Uh, So my challenge this week is actually going to be for for one of the most popular Enchantress Commanders of all time already. And that is going to be Sithis Harvest Hand decks. So Cythis is a green and a white for a legendary enchantment creature. Uh, it's a one-two, and whenever you cast an enchantment spell, you gain one life and you draw a card. So one note that I've noticed about actually from Dana's decks where he plays a lot of wild growth type of effects and all these enchantments that uh, you enchant a land, and then whenever those lands are tapped, you generate extra mana. <laughs> those types of effects are great, and if you look at Cythis's average lists, They're running a fair amount, not a ton, but they could be certainly playing more. Uh, But that's why I want to challenge Cultivate. I'm not going to tell you to play more of it. I'm going to tell you to play less of it. (laughs) What am I doing saying Cultivate shouldn't be in as many decks? Well, (laughs) Cultivate, we we talk about how ramp sometimes in the later stages of the game can be dead draws. And at least with a lot of the ramp that you want to be playing in Sithis decks... Any of these types of cards that are enchantments that can trip you out with Sithis ability, those actually aren't going to be dead draws. So Abundant Growth, it turns into a draw spell later, so it's never truly dead. Whereas Cultivate is still being played in over 23% of decks so far, and I think you just want to drop those completely. So whether you're playing Rampant Growth or any of those other ramp spells that are grabbing lands, I think you want to be playing these enchantments that are going to enchant your lands and be powering them up as your ramp because they're never truly dead. Plus, that does make Arbor Elf a very, very powerful card, though. Mm. And that's only being played in 20% of Sithis decks. And if you have lands that are tapping for three or four mana, that's just great because Arbor Elf then makes four mana again, too. If you're playing Sithis decks, I'm going to recommend that you take out Cultivate. I'm sorry. I know this seems like... Some blasphemous nonsense coming from me saying don't play Cultivate. <laughs> but in Scythus Harvest Hand decks specifically, I do think Cultivate and Land Ramp spells are going to be a little overrated when you could be playing cards that are just going to draw you extra cards. Because, again, Scythus is only two mana. That's very cheap. It's easy to get on the battlefield. Oh, yeah. You get that engine online right away. And I just think that you want to be switching up your mana ramp. I, it's, it's kind of funny, isn't it, that a few weeks ago I was telling people you need to be playing less Artifacts for your mana ramp in Omnath decks and I have another deck now where I'm saying don't play that mana ramp play enchantments
2: instead so welcome to 2022 folks no yeah I Cultivate is a card that I also think is overplayed in Marin of Clan Neltoth for example like I don't want this effect on a spell I want this effect on a creature that I can manipulate with my aristocracy, sacrificey goodness and the same is totally true for an enchantress deck why play a spell that isn't going to draw you any cards when you could play enchantment ramp that will draw you plenty of cards so yeah I'm definitely on board with that challenge Matt Um, I I think that it's an enchanting challenge. Oh, I feel seen right now. I feel so seen. To go back to the tennis puns, I did not net any positive points with Matt there. I think we just need to move on. Okay, okay. <laughs> I am trying too hard. All right, I'll move to my challenge here. Um, and my challenge comes to us from one of our listeners. This is from listener Quirky Turtle, who has a very fun challenge for the card Repudiate and Replicate. This is a split card with two very interesting sides. The first one is a double Simic Hybrid Instant that counters target activated or triggered ability. I. I love this effect already. I will have a story to tell about it. The other half of the card is Replicate, which is a three-mana Simic Sorcery that creates a token that is a copy of target creature you control. Um, Specifically, this is a card that is very near and dear to me because one Rachel Weeks... Commander Advisory Group Extraordinaire has used Repudiate against me in a couple of games to stop some of my very fun triggered abilities, such as you know stopping me from using a Seal of Primordium against her, for example. And this is basically Quirky Turtle's points here, uh, point here, too, is that Repudiate has a lot more uses than it first looks like. For example, you can counter the triggered ability of a Bajuka Bog trying to exile your graveyard, or it can even counter a Dockside Extortionist that would be about to make a bunch of treasures. Uh, it can stop a thought. Asses Oracle. If you're uh, running in a meta that has problems with Thassa's Oracle for example. There are a lot of different use cases for this card and the other half is also pretty good. Like let's say you have a commander that has an enters the battlefield ability. You can use the replicate half to make a token copy of that commander just to get the ability again or you can use this in a deck like Adrix and Nev Twin Casters which will double up the tokens. So this is a very versatile card. Countering triggered abilities is getting more and more important in the games that we play. I totally agree with Corky Turtle's assessment here and I do think that the twenty Twenty-five percent of Atrix and Neb decks that are currently playing this card. I think they're on the right track and that that number especially could go up, but this is a card that a lot more Simic decks could be using too. So yeah, give this one a look, Quirky Turtle. I like this pick. It's a very quirky
0: pick. Well done. Well, last, but of course not least, <laughs> uh, I'm going to drop my pick on y'all. Mm. Um, Keep Watch is in just 2,600 decks in EDH Rec. It is a draw spell um, from back in Judgment in 2002 when it was replanted in plane chase in 2009 but we haven't seen a a real like released version of it other than i think in one of the anthologies um so i think people just don't know it exists and for two and a blue it's an instant speed draw a card for each attacking creature um yeah in most metas you're going to very frequently see two creatures swinging through and if two creatures swing through that's a fine value drawing two cards at instant speed, (laughs) but it's, that's kind of the floor. There's plenty of situations where you're going to draw, you know, three or six or eight or (laughs) 10. The card's an absolute beating sometimes in the right deck or the right meta. And obviously the best place to run it is in a deck where you yourself are going wide, um, you know, Millicent Restless Revenant is a relatively new commander oh. that makes spirit tokens. It's in the right colors. It's only in currently 1% of Millicent decks. Um, it's only in 5% of Talran decks, a, a, a commander that's built around making tokens. Uh, Kaikar, only 3% of Kaikar decks. If your commander is, is in blue and it's one that makes tokens, it's almost always worth running. Keep watch. It's going to have a really, really High floor and the ceiling is crazy on it in those decks. <laughs> um, not to mention, you know, occasionally someone else is going to do a wild swing as well. And you're still going to draw four or five or six cards, let alone what you're going to get on your own. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to challenge that one, um, very wildly. If you are playing a blue commander that makes tokens, you should run, keep watch. It should be in way more than 2,600 decks. It's, it's a, it's a monster of a card. Especially because if you
2: are being alpha striked by a big board of a bunch of tokens, maybe Keep Watch is the thing that helps you find the actual fog that's right. in your deck that would make you survive that Yeah, attack. especially
0: at three mana. If, if someone's doing a big wide swing at you with like six or seven bodies and you can dig down that far, mm. yeah, you may well have, even have mana after you cast it to, to cast your response, for sure.
1: Yeah, Dana is just proving that you are the king of all these cards that you can cast— and they're based off of other people's combat step, not your own.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm yeah, just kind of yep.
1: used to it at this point. Maybe grown a little numb, but <laughs> I'm glad that you're still like keeping with these picks because they're always, oh yeah, that do- oh yeah, that
2: does work oh, yeah. that way. Oh yeah. It's totally true, though. Dana has earned that reputation. He's the guy who will berserk the creature that Matt is attacking me with or tainted strike the creature that Chase is attacking me with. So, so yeah, Dana benefiting off of other – Why do I have the Karazikar deck? Dana, it seems like you should be the one who has the Karazikar deck. It seems like you like other people attacking each
0: other. I, I always figure if you pay taxes on both sides of the road, you should get to use it. <laughs> wow.
2: <laughs> this guy. Oh, my lord. this. Well, guy. there that okay. is. There that is. All right. So moving back into uh, talking again about, you know, weaknesses and shoring things up, I I actually specifically want to kind of touch on a, a big thing for me that might be a weird way of phrasing what your weaknesses are. A lot of the stuff that we addressed in the first part of the show was us talking about when your weaknesses are kind of across the table from you. For example, there are card types that are difficult for you to address. But I think it's important for us to note that there are some archetypes out there, and I'm going to list landfall as a very big example of this idea. There are some archetypes out there where the weakness is more likely found in the deck's construction. Um, Specifically, one of the things, a a drum that we've beat a lot in this podcast, um, like over the course of several episodes, we've said that landfall decks frequently are not playing enough lands. And generally, I still think that that's true. I think one of the biggest weaknesses of a landfall deck is not having enough basics that you can fetch for to, to trigger all of those landfall cards, and especially trying to play too many cards with a landfall ability, and therefore you're only like you're running fewer than forty lands to try and make that stuff happen. So you are running out of gas just because of the way that the deck is constructed so matt you have a landfall deck i guess i want to get your take on this like how do you feel about that type of weakness and shoring things up when it is actually more self-caused in a way well yeah i remember
1: somebody sent me a list not too long ago and they asked me for my feedback so okay well here's my landfall deck what do you think and i looked at they were playing 34 lands and i said okay Ah. the very first thing that i'm going to tell you is add six lands and the response that I got was, but I can't do that because I need this, this, and this, this. Like, no, you you don't need all of those <laughs> things. Find out the things that you want to be doing the most and cut down because you need mm-hmm. fuel for all these things. If you're playing an aristocrat deck, for example, you need both your payoffs and your setup cards. Yeah. You need those things that are going to give you lots of things to sacrifice, but also you need a sacrifice outlet. So if you don't have that right ratio, you might be running out of one of those, which might be your most basic resource. With landfall decks, just luckily it's free to run more payoffs because they're just lands. You want those in your deck <laughs> anyways. So yeah, if if you're if you're playing a landfall deck, people don't play thirty four lands, um, <laughs> please. And thank you. And you're
2: welcome, <laughs> Matt, with his impassioned plea over here. And like, I feel it. I totally feel it. This is uh, a, and, and it feels weird. But like it, it again, it, the the way that you described it there is like honing down. Like find the <laughs> landfall decks feel to me like a, a an example of a deck archetype that is playing too many possible win conditions. But yes. like, it, it, I don't know, if you have a Rampaging baloths in play and an Omnath in play and a filath in play, those are all beautiful landfall ability options. And you, I, I don't think you need all of them. Any one of them is going to generate such a big and vast army that playing all three of them and play at the same time, you're just asking for a board wipe. And and you're just like, one at a time is totally fine. You can just have the Omnath and play more lands and you will make more five fives. 5s Like, just the Omnath would do in this case. So that is a, a place where slimming down figuring out how you can find those ratios again i think is really important and this is a a tougher thing to to examine i think that these things kind of don't emerge until we play the decks more often and see that oh shoot My, you know, my land-searching cards are finding fewer and fewer lands because I am not playing enough basics because I'm trying to stuff a bunch of cool stuff into the deck. But no, there's not always room for it, and that's okay. Shoring up your weaknesses often involves a lot of introspection from the deck-building process because sometimes your ratios are out of balance, and Landfall's a really big example of, of that exact
0: problem well and lands i think in general also kind of are, are something that we we think about not just landfall but like dealing with lands as a problem as well um i run i tend to run two to three land removal lands in all of my decks mm. um you know maybe you can get away with less and, and i am conscious of that if i'm playing green i'm like okay well maybe i can get away with with two because i have beast within as a removal spell if i'm in white same thing i have i have generous gift so like that hits a land as well um, so maybe I'll, I'll worry about a little bit less there. But I tend to always run two or three of those because I'm conscious of the fact that someone dropping on Cabal Coffers is going to win the game <laughs> if you let them have a Cabal Coffers for a couple turns. Even like Nykthos um, can can blow out a game if the person has a good amount of permanence in play, let alone something like Gaia's Cradle um, or Sarah's Sanctum in an Enchantress deck. Um, you just need answers for lands, and that is something I am very conscious of. If I'm playing in colors that don't have ways to deal with that, you know, black doesn't really have ways to single target removal lands, like a a Beast Within or or a Vindicate or something. So I I am generally conscious of running three of those lands versus in you know a green or white deck I might run one or two.
2: Well, and there actually is a big important point for me, since, you know, if we're talking about a mono-black deck, playing those lands, yes, Dana, totally agree, that can stop someone else from having a really big, bad land over there. But a weakness that I noticed in terms of lands in my mono-black deck was playing too many of those those non-basic lands, and I wasn't playing enough Swamps, so then when I was trying to use Cabal Coffers for myself or Cabal Stronghold for myself, it was producing almost nothing at all, because I had a bunch of non basics that were messing that up. So it's a difficult ratio to find.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Watering down decks is is if y- I'd wager anybody who's been playing this format for any amount of time really has encountered a situation where they they got so fixated on solving problems that they water their deck down to the point where it's not doing what they originally intended. And I've I mentioned this on the podcast not too recently, or not too long ago, I should say. Uh, my Tasa Karlov deck, I set out to do one thing and I realized you know, a couple years later, this deck isn't at all what I wanted it to do. I found myself putting in so many answers to all these different things that the deck isn't even doing the thing that I set out to do to begin with. Uh, And yes, maybe with your landfall decks, you you only have room for 34 lands because you want to be doing so many things. But hear me out here, maybe focus on doing just one of those things and build another landfall deck. Then you have two landfall decks (laughs) Then you can play yourself in the battle of the landfalls. And that just sounds so much more fun.
2: And they can each have more than forty lands, so that they can each do the thing that they're trying <laughs> yes. to do. Yes, I'm I'm all about that. And, and so the, flipping around here, like I think that is an example of a deck archetype that has an issue of potentially very easily accidentally running too many win conditions and it doesn't actually need all that many of them and you can isolate more of them and and focus in on those and that will be more rewarding for you but there are a lot of deck archetypes where this is the exact opposite problem for example i think enchantress can be one of those styles that struggles a bit with finding a good and proper win condition in an effective or timely manner and maybe even blink decks also fall into this as well like a brago king eternal deck for instance Like, these are decks that I think might have an issue of playing so many value engines, but uh, having, like, three win conditions in the deck or so and so actually closing out the games in a timely fashion is difficult for them to do these strike me as archetypes that actually struggle more with having enough win conditions in the deck because the value engines are so strong and you get so addicted to drawing all of those cards and doing all of those blinky things that you forget that oh yeah i actually need to close this thing out how am i going to do that in a timely way so that my opponents don't have enough time to get back in the game and take the victory away from me
1: well, in a strategy I would probably put into this category too is life gain decks. How do you weaponize all of this life that you're gaining? There's a, there's a huge difference between not losing the game and winning the game. So yeah. how do you find that balance? But with life gain decks, sure, you may not win the game or you may not lose the game, I should say, but how do you turn around and then win the game? And it's just, it's a weird, but y- yes, you have Flux Reservoir, but that's one card and, and you need to find more than one like yes, you don't need you don't need 10 win conditions on the battlefield at any given time right. But making sure that you're able to get something out there to to actively win the game You don't want to be the person with 40 counter spells in in their mono blue deck, but you don't have any any way to win Yes, you prevent people from doing anything, but you don't actually win win yourself I'd put life gain into this category that you were talking about Dana or Joey <laughs> <laughs> Whoever you are <laughs>
0: No, that, that, that's – yeah, that's a good point because you can have just too many answers to the point where to, – where, to, your, to your weaknesses to the point where you have made that a weakness to a degree. Um, and I guess the the next thought I would have on this too is maybe knowing when you have to just punt. <laughs> you have to just resign yourself to this being a weakness I can't address. Mm. We We touched on it early on in the beginning a little bit with the – the kind of, um, unstable obelisk car from existence kind of problem. Um, sometimes you just have to say to yourself, okay, I I can't deal with this thing. And rather than run bad solutions, I'm just going to occasionally lose games to it and, and, uh, and make sure I win games when I'm not dealing with that to kind of offset it. Um, that that's also, I think a kind of a level up moment to a degree when you understand that and, just try to work around your weakness or accept it's going to happen on occasion and 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 work on moving forward versus trying to solve a problem that might not be really solvable.
2: This this is a huge thing for me in the reanimator decks that I play. Dana, I completely agree there that yeah, if someone bajuka bogs me, dang it, but okay, I get it, maybe I can play that Repudiate card to try and stop that, but like, I'm not going to just play Repudiate just to try and stop that, because it might be a dead card that is keeping me, like if if I'm drawing all of these cards that are solutions to things that aren't actually happening, well, that's preventing me from getting my plan A online in the first place, if I'm too busy thinking of plan B and plan C. Or even it can affect your deck construction in ways that you maybe don't even... uh, don't want it to like if I am really afraid of someone having a rest in peace in play that's going to stop me from being able to put stuff in graveyards well sure I can try and load more enchantment removal into my deck but then I might also even be tempted to put more tutors into my deck so that I can make sure that I find those cards in a more timely fashion but that means that I've just put a bunch of tutors into my deck and that will change the way that I play that deck when I draw those tutors and there isn't a rest in peace in play and that's not necessarily something that I'm after removing tutors from my deck is a thing that I've done to try and just embrace the variance that is so common in edh games so like having the weakness that is a form of variance that sometimes it's nice to just like yeah you know what you totally got me if you hadn't i'm pretty sure i would have got you but in this case you totally got me and i'm glad that i didn't have to wildly change my deck construction and my attitudes about it so that i might be able to solve a problem this one time sometimes not having a solution is a better solution it's kind of weird though well,
0: and sometimes it kind of frees up slots too. I have a blue black artifact deck that doesn't run counter spells. And it's not because I don't like counter spells, it's a situation where I put the deck together and I couldn't figure out how to cut it down to 100 cards from 105 because <laughs> I wanted all these cards and all these pieces made complete sense to me and i also had five counterspells in the deck and it like as i'm brewing it i just was i just dawned on me okay well maybe i just accept the fact that at some point someone's going to cast or create a creature behemoth and i'm just not going to stop it and for every game that happens where i can't respond because i didn't put that counterspell in my deck there's going to be you know twice as many games where these additional pieces enabled my deck to to, to do what it wants to do and that's fine i'm going to enjoy the games where everything works because i have all the pieces i need and once in a while i'm just going to lose one because i don't have counter spells mm. um that's just how it works sometimes you just have to come, kind of said, embrace those weaknesses or recognize they're part of your deck and work on moving forward
1: yeah it's it's always that balance of knowing okay if i make this change That opens up the door for something else. So there's always going to be a give and take. Right. There's nothing that's ever going to be a strictly positive, this deck is better in every single aspect, because if you take out a removal spell... Yes, you might be getting something more fun or you might get a recursion spell, but by not having that interaction without somebody else, you might lose to a Voltron deck every now and then. Yep. That's just how, that's just part of the deck building process. So accepting that every change is going to make your deck a little bit weaker on some axis, mm. maybe not one that's very, very obvious, but in some way, there's going to be something that you struggle a little bit more with because you gave up something in a different category. But also, if people would just realize that you're, in a four player pod in commander in EDH, whatever we're calling it, you're, if you're winning 25% of your games, you're doing it right. <laughs> I think that's just one realization that people just, if people just had that, it might help a lot because yeah, yeah. I, you don't need to win every single game. This isn't, I, I'm playing a social format and I'm playing it socially. If I win. A quarter of the games because there's four people at the table, that's perfect.
0: Yeah. This is where you this is where you bring up the the math checks out gif on the screen with Will Ferrell. Oh. The math <laughs> checks out on that. There, we, as go, as we, there we
2: go. There we go. Well, what I actually was going to say that if you played uh 40 games total and you were looking for how many of those that, you know, per your 25% winning uh, ratio there, the 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 right number, Matt, would you say 10 is the right number to have won out of forty games? I, I don't miss. Or I don't <laughs> I, I don't know what this joke is. So I'm gonna let you
0: tenness ten tennis. Come on, man! Game set match just... from Joey. Mm. Thank
2: you. I I thought I was I I was very proud that, of that. I'm. This is just a bunch <laughs> of racket
1: going on
0: now. I just need <laughs> yes, I need to tone it down. Ten is the loneliest number. <laughs> uh (laughs)
2: there we go guys this was a very fascinating episode listeners we would love to hear from you about the weaknesses in your deck and which ones you shore up and how you navigate these because it's all really tricky stuff but for now guys let's call this episode to a close and if our listeners want to get in touch with us where is it that they can find us all matt so you can find me on the
1: twitters at Mathemus 55 that's m-a-t-h-i-m-u-s-5-5 and don't forget wednesday evenings we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash edh reccast where i have guests on every single week. And it's always a great time. So make sure you tune in for all that nonsense that happens over there.
0: <laughs> and Dana, you can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can hear me on other podcasts, CMDR Central. I'm writing articles for EDH Rec and Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash and I'm Joey Schultz. You
2: can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDH RecCast on Facebook and on Twitter. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDH at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase, aka Manicurves, for assisting us with the post-production work on the podcast, and we want to thank our sponsors TCGPlayer and CardKingdom.com. Plus, you can visit Altersleeves.com slash EDH RecCast for cool, custom EDH Rec sleeves. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH RecCast your deck before you wreck your deck.
0: Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived.